How did Rick Carlisle do in year two coaching the Indiana Pacers? A good question to ask and a good person to evaluate, just like the players. Caitlin Cooper going to join, and we're going to talk all about head coach Rick Carlisle, his second season at the helm of the Pacers, the good, the bad, the growth areas. It's all coming today on the Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name is Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI. And today, changing gears from player season reviews to team leader season reviews. Kaylee Cooper and I have two more to do today, starting with Rick Carlisle, the head coach who just wrapped up his second season coaching this Pacers team and has had to kind of pivot from what he's been known as, which is a tactician to more of a developer, a builder and all sorts of things. We get into the good and the successful things from Carlisle's second season, the bad things, the less successful things from his second season and growth areas in general for him as a coach guiding this franchise. It's all coming today. Let's get right to it. The player season reviews are done, but the season reviews themselves are not because key decision makers and leaders also should be evaluated to some extent. Rick Carlisle and Kevin Pritchard need to be discussed. And we'll start with Rick Carlisle joining me to do these as we have for the seven player season review shows is Caitlin Cooper from Basketball. She wrote, Caitlin, the trouble I have with evaluating seasons for decision makers and leaders is we were talking about this before recorded is when I talk about Tyrese Halberton season, I evaluate it based on things I saw Tyrese Halberton do. And when I evaluate Rick Carlisle and Kevin Pritchard season, to an extent, I also evaluate it based on things that Tyrese Halbert and 16 other people did. And so you're almost evaluating them based on the visible part of what other people did. It's harder to see what they did and didn't do versus what players did and didn't do, if that makes sense. No, it's really difficult to parse. I mean, with coaching, the number one thing that I always say is that the X's and O's are a very small part of it. And, you know, I grew up in a coaching family, and obviously it's a lot different at the high school level than it is at the professional level. But I know how many hats a, a coach has to wear and how many things are going on behind the scenes that we never see that they have to manage and do. So I think number one, like when I'm evaluating coaching, a lot of times is that, yeah, you know, being a tactical mastermind certainly matters at the NBA at every level. But if you don't have buy-in, then that doesn't really matter that much. So um, I'm sure that's stuff that we'll get into today. But yeah, I think that evaluating front office and coaching staff is a lot harder than what we just did on the prior seven episodes when there's very tangible things that you can look at and point to. Yeah, that and I think with coaching decisions and front office decisions is I can only know what they did. I can't know what they didn't do unless it comes out. And so it's harder to say you, you can only go on results, which I suppose is fair, but sometimes it, you know, the process could have been perfect and you're killing someone for it or, you know, you know, you just don't know. And I find that to be very difficult. Yeah. I mean, that's what I always say around the trade deadline, right? Without Me knowing too. what deals were actually out there, how do I criticize what they didn't do or what they did do? So well, I, I will obviously be critical that they didn't trade four first round picks for the best player in the NBA, even though I don't even know if they, you know, that kind of thing. It's like I have no idea what to make of that. Let's start with Rick Carlisle, Caitlin. And the way we're going to do these listeners is we decided we're going to talk about the biggest strength or best successful thing 
uh, the person did this season where they weren't successful this season and a growth area for them going forward, starting with Rick Carlisle, who turned himself into a leader of a rebuilding team and loved those little coaching moments, Kalen. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a transition for him, right? I mean, I, I have a fairly long list of areas where I think he was successful in maybe ways that people wouldn't have perceived of Rick Carlisle in the past. So just to piggyback off of our last episode about Tyrese Halliburton, because I do want to give Rick Carlisle credit for this, is that there was a clear team identity, that we could watch that team. We knew what they were trying to accomplish on both ends of the floor, where they're always successful in executing it. Not every game, but you knew what the mission was and that he amended his style. He amended it to what Tyrese Halliburton is as a player and what Tyrese Halliburton wants to do as a player. So just to add some numbers to this, to give it context, after they traded for Tyrese Halliburton last season, the Pacers finished the year ranking 23rd overall in transition frequency. And that was even with Tyrese and Buddy in the mix. This year, they finished ranking fourth. And like going back through Rick's seasons in Dallas, over the last six years, they never ranked higher than 28th, I believe. So some of that, again, like it goes back to Luka wanting to play at a more methodical place. Obviously, Malcolm Brogdon did. But I mean, I had a thread last year from early in that season where you could literally hear Rick Carlisle doing a lot of pace control and micromanaging from the sidelines, particularly when they were on that three-game losing streak where I think you'll probably remember they went to New York and they went to Detroit and they barely scored like 10 points in the fourth quarter. And you could kind of hear him telling through the broadcast, telling Brogdon, like, hold it, hold it and that he wanted to call plays in certain circumstances there. Like Malcolm and Tyrese are clearly very different players, but he let go of the reins in a lot of ways this year. I mean, they formulated a way for them to play quicker. He let Tyrese do a lot more of the play calling. I mean, most famously when he made that game winner against the Bulls, you could see them on the free... When the bolt, when Zach Levine was at the free throw line, you could see Tyrese and Rick having a conversation and Rick being like, oh, you have something? Okay. And him deferring to what Tyrese wanted to call for the final possession and going with that play. Like, that's not what had been reported of Rick in the past or how the way people have perceived him, but he clearly made a lot of adjustments there. And it seemed like the relationship between he and Tyrese was very open and um, molded to what his players' strengths were. Yeah, I remember early in the season, there was a lot of chatter, you know, when you would ask about them not running as many plays, like at all. And Rick, not, I think Rick said it was the least he's ever called in his career. And Tyrese said it's they don't run that that many at all. He called it random action. It's not actually random, like that word isn't literal. But that that you know they just kind of get down there, feel it out, and go. And that is a big change for the way that he's coached and the teams that he's had for forever and ever, which can be hard to do. And I and I found this kind of illuminating. I think this was at the Jalen Jalen Smith introductory presser reintroductory. What would you call that? He was already on the team and he was back with the team. Um, and I was asking Rick about, you know, this younger team. And I was it was me and Scott talking to him, Scott Agnes. And he said, yeah, you know, he he loves those little individual teaching moments. And I only bring that up to say, like, I think he had to change quite a bit about what was perceived about him. If you remember the TNT broadcast, they were playing the Heat in his first season. They were like 14 and 18. And Jared Greenberg was like, I talked to Rick before the game about if he came into a rebuilding situation and he said, no, I didn't want to come into a situation like that. And then two months later, guess what? It was a rebuilding situation. So I think he's had to change kind of a lot about what he's done in the past. And this year that was successful, which is, is interesting just given how long he's been a coach for in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways this season, because of the way they overachieved early on, that was kind of a difficult line to walk, right? Like he had to manage balancing team development with still them pushing to get wins. 
And that isn't always easy for every team in the NBA to manage both timelines all the time. And that's kind of why I want to throw in here, too, that I think one of the ways that he was successful in doing that is that there was a lot of accountability, I felt, um, up and down the roster. I know that that isn't necessarily an overall popular opinion all the time with the fan base, but what he did with Benedict Matherin at certain points within the games, whether, I mean, that was clear through game 82. Matherin gets, gives up a blow by to Emmanuel quickly, gives up middle and lets him get right down the floor and, and Benedict gets pulled for just a couple minutes so that they could have a discussion. And then he puts him back in or like, you know, in Miami, Benedict makes like five defensive errors within a four minute span. He gets pulled. Like there was, there was a sense that the minutes weren't going to be unconditional, right? Like there was going to be opportunity there, but that doesn't mean that you just automatically get to play. And it wasn't just Benedict. Like I know that Benedict has said that he appreciates being coached hard, but you can point to earlier points in the season. They play the Houston Rockets. Buddy has almost an identical moment to what I just described against Emmanuel quickly against Eric Gordon. And Buddy got pulled in the second quarter. He got benched. And you could tell that Buddy wasn't thrilled with it. But if you don't hold the veterans accountable to that, it's harder to do it with the younger players. And he did the same thing with Tyrese um, in a game against the Heat. There was a full five hockey man substitution against the San Antonio Spurs when nobody got back in transition. Um, and Miles, like even against the game against Brooklyn, he didn't play well in that game. And they finished with Jalen Smith at the five for the last two minutes. It wasn't Miles. So um, I think that that type of stuff is important. It it makes people realize that, hey, there's somebody behind me who can come in and play these minutes. And we're going to have to teach people like because of what the struggles on the defensive end of the floor were that, hey, like we're instilling these principles, even if it didn't necessarily come out in execution. They knew that it was an important part of them being able to get playing time. Yeah, this is maybe a failure of me, media person, but I always found it really interesting that Benedict was like, yeah, I asked to be coached like this. And every fan was like, this is bad. They need, to, you know, he needs to be playing more. And why are they taking him out in these situations? Because like, he because he asked for it and because that's what they're doing this season. Like that is their plan for these. It, Rick always called it building championship habits, right? They don't if they're working on something that they view to be a championship habit over and over again, and then in a game, it immediately doesn't happen. What are they supposed to do? Just shrug it off? Like, that's not going to, you know, build the culture that he talked about. And Dustin Dopierak in the Indy Star wrote a, a story about this. But, you know, Rick talked a lot about how building the culture they want to chase that sort of, you know, build the habits every day style is like a never-ending goal. You have to continually strive to have that kind of culture. It's not like you have it one day and it's like, great, we can relax a little bit. Like, that is an objective Every single day, it's one of the it's one of the constants of NBA objectives, and that transcends down to those little things you talked about in games. So, you know, I I get why it, it, fans want to see the young guys playing as much as possible. Like that makes sense. It, it is valuable for development. Players will tell you minutes is the best way to develop, but it also makes sense given what they're trying to build and the way they've talked about it at least publicly, the way they handled those moments. Hey guys, short little break here so I can talk to you about eBay Motors. For a championship team, it's all about making sure every player is a perfect fit. It's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories, head to eBay Motors. With eBay's guaranteed fit, you can be sure every part you need fits right the first time around. Just add your ride to My Garage and look for the green check to know the part will fit or your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. eBay guaranteed fit. Only available to U.S. customers. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Yeah, and I think there's a difference between letting a young player play through like a learning process or a mistake and when it's an effort thing. There were occasions yeah. where some of the times when Benedict got play, got pulled, like in the game against Miami where Jimmy's just beating him down the floor in transition or you're just willfully giving him his left or whatever, where that's that's more of an effort issue that you need to reinstill that every possession matters. So um, versus, you know, maybe and, and Andrew Nemhard got pulled at the end of some games too. Like he didn't finish that Martin Luther King game. TJ McConnell did because TJ was scoring like 20 points in the first half. But regardless of that, like there's a difference between like, oh, I made the wrong read here. Like I was trying to do the right thing. I didn't, I didn't read what the defense was doing and continuing to let somebody play through that and hoping that they make a better decision on the next play versus, you know, effort. So another thing that I wanted to bring up with regards to Rick Carlisle is when you watched his offense in the half court this year, and this is kind of a double-edged sword because they finished, 24th I believe in half court efficiency according to cleaning the glass versus what they were doing in transition and obviously when you get in a playoff scenario and more of the offense gets confined to the half court that's something they're going to want to improve on but the offense was not as intricate as Rick Carlisle is capable of crafting either and I think that was very deliberate like if you look at a lot of their set actions the ones they ran the most whether it was wide reject Spain whether it was corner whether it was just playing wide like those are very simple things where they were trying to teach young players how to make reads so he dialed back some of what you know you've seen him run maybe when he had a more veteran team or he had Luka Doncic and giving Tyrese some freedom to you know paint outside the lines at times within some of those actions but I actually think that's somewhat a credit to him and that's going to sound strange because from a numerical standpoint like the results weren't good but maybe you're willing to take that so that you know guys do know how to play when a play breaks down like that's a very important thing at the NBA level because you do want to play like what you said before more random offense that can't be scouted in a playoff situation so being able to teach guys of hey this is what you need to do when a team covers this up or this is what you know, whether you're sidestepping to the right or sidestepping to the left against the closeout or creating those kind of simple decisions for them to make, I think was also something that was a credit to him. Yeah, especially after seeing the Bjorken year where it was all really complicated with the goal being in the playoffs, this will be great. And then they didn't make it. <laughs> you know, in, to my, in my head, when you're a regular season-focused team, simplifying makes sense. And I think they've talked about that a little bit. As well, especially in the offensive end with a new team, right? They have to all figure out how to fit together when they're going to be better in the future. And what does that look like when a play breaks down is all critically important kind of stuff. Do you have any defensive thoughts here or should we move on to the less successful parts? Oh, I still have some more successful oh, continue, continue. Um, I, I just wanted to bring up one specific things with regards to Benedict as well, that once they switched and he was moved into the starting lineup at the back end of the season, if people watch, and I wrote about it in an article when I was talking about evaluating Benedict in the present future, they were running a play for him called early to get him a touch in the wing area in that Kobe Jordan spot in two-point range. They ran it like almost every game, and again, the results were not particularly good. It was like kind of putting Benedict in an escape room and being like, hey, we're going to get you these touches, figure out how to get off this island and to create your own shot in a short period of time. Like again, like it can't be a results-based evaluation because it was important to be getting Benedict those types of touches when Tyrese wasn't on the floor. So there were times where it was leading to, you know, like step back twos or one time he dribbled it off his leg against Reggie Bullock or, you know, there were some mistakes there, but again, being willing to run that type of stuff, even though, you know, like, Hey, we may not get any points out of this. We just need to have him, you know, kind of like, 
putting training wheels on being like, Hey, we're going to let you work on it from this spot in the hopes that eventually we can move you out to three and then get a more efficient shot. If you can create quick enough with your defender there. So that was another little tiny thing that I thought was valuable, especially over those like last eight games. Yeah. And sometimes the skills you learn from that one player, one action can apply to other sets or other moments of the game. Right. So like, obviously that's significant for his growth going forward, but even in a team concept, if he, catches it somewhere else he can learn counters or learn just various things that are a part of the mechanical part of the game i feel like from those reps you learn that can be applied to other things right so just giving him those chances i think was important and then just one last little tiny x's and o's thing that i wanted to add here is like the very first game that they played against miami you'll probably recall that they struggled against miami's 2-3 zone a lot the Miami ran 32 possessions of zone in that game and they were held scoreless on 21. And then for whatever reason, Eric Spolstra pulled out of it, like with two minutes to play, like he called a timeout and went to man, I think to throw the Pacers off balance and be like, Hey, we've switched coverages. We've been in zone for, you know, the last quarter and maybe this is a curveball. And then the Pacers did better against the man. They ended up winning that game, but about midway through the season, like the Pacers, from a points per possession standpoint against zone, we're not handling it very well. Like they don't really have bigs they can put in the middle of a two, three and make plays out of. That's why so often Andrew Nemhard was flashing in there, but they added a new zone play. I won't go into express detail on what it was, but usually beforehand they would do where they screen the inside of the zone and what they call X. And then that kind of creates a hole for the ball handler to go through teams hit kind of, um, found a way to get around that. So they added a new zone play midway through the season and they ended up finishing 10th in points per possession against zone. It was very effective for them. So just to throw out there that just because they did run a little bit more simple actions this year, Rick is still capable of being fire with the pen when he needs to be. So, so that was so, great. So that was just one thing that I wanted to add in there that like he, he, he can do stuff in the half court still. That was a great line. I, I aspire to that. Yeah, that that is what he's known for, right? That and his defensive adjustments and you know the Mavs title run. But that is sort of what he is thought of as a really good tactician kind of coach, which is why many were like, he's coaching this young Pacers team. But I still think he, I think he really loved this season as the head coach and things like that are what makes him still such a well-respected coach. Like it, it's it's wild, like. I, I don't necessarily want to say that fans have like this grip on who isn't is a good coach, but like every other opposing coach is like, Oh, Rick's fantastic at this still like all the time and pregame and postgame media. And then fans are like, we should fire this guy. I don't know. I think every team's fan base thinks that. So I shouldn't actually give any solace to that thought, but he is still very highly thought of around the league. Rick is. Well, yeah, because this is one thing like I was on a podcast about evaluating coaching last week with Samson Folk over at Raptors Republic. And he asked me, like, how do you evaluate coaching? And one thing I said is like, I look at the machinations of plays a lot. And one of the things that you ask is like, you know, who's this play going to be run for? How does it hold up against different types of defensive coverages and then the spacing and the execution? And like, for example, the Pacers and the Raptors run an identical play. Um, I wrote about it with Jordan Nwara. It's a chin play where essentially it's a back screen into a ball screen, and he was the ball handler. TJ McConnell gives the ball to Wara and will cut ball side, which creates a single side tag on the backside that the Pacers get a great shot of all the time. When the Raptors run that, Fred Van Fleet exits to the weak side which means there's two players to tag on the backside and the spacing's completely different. It's one little tiny tweak that makes a play for the Pacers that much more effective, even though two teams are running the identical action. So again, like 
I think that Rick is very good at maximizing spacing for the team that's out there and putting players in the right position around it to, to create those types of advantages. Stop with the details and just say fire with the pen every single time. <laughs> Everybody will understand. We can move into where he wasn't successful if you would like. Uh, we, we should, yeah. Okay, so you were obviously at Media Day there in person and I'm and during training camp, and I'm sure you will remember this line where Uh-oh. they said there was a two-to-one ratio of defense to offense <laughs> at training camp. I do remember that. And that got like a lot of attention because they were going to fix things. And if you will recall the prior year at Media Day, what were the two things that they said headed into that season that they needed to fix? Oh, do you gosh. remember? D- it was a defense and rebounding? Defense and togetherness. Oh, so we are now two seasons into. <laughs> we need to fix this defense. So, well, do you do you remember what I asked Rick what they worked on the first practice after the All Star break? I'm sure it was the defense because they had, talked about, the they had talked about yeah. how they didn't have a lot of practice time, which I mean, I do think that that yes. matters. Sometimes I think about that in the modern NBA sense that because of load management for teams like the Pacers, where you have a guy like Buddy who's not going to sit out games, how do you find rest advantages? Probably with cutting back on practice time. But regardless of that, I did look up the numbers and when Miles and Halliburton were both available and we talked about this a little bit on the last pod and they went 26 and 22 in those games, they still allowed, and this isn't just when they were on the court, this is the team as a whole, they allowed 116 points per 100 possessions, which is like basically no different than their overall mark. So even if we want to be like, oh, they were in development mode and that's why they were giving up all those 140 point games at the end of the year, like the defense was never... You know, there was like a brief moment in time when they won those like eight games out of 10 where they started first going to small lineups with four guards. And I think that that threw opponents off guard a little bit because of the amount of switching and the cross matching that they were doing. And then teams ended up finding hacks for it. But I will say this, like while they didn't necessarily find an answer, I don't and people are probably going to disagree with me about this. I don't really think it was a schematic issue as much as roster imbalance not having wing size wings and um, just player execution. I mean, I don't even think it was so much a coaching thing. Like I know that it changed from Lloyd Pierce was more coordinating the defense a, a year ago and Ronald Norad took over. Like they gave up a ton of paint points and rim frequency. And yet if you watch the way they were scheming the defense, like if you just look at it independently of those numbers, everything they were doing was to take away the paint. They had a very heavy nail presence. They peel switched. They nexted more than they ever have over the prior two seasons. And those are kind of thought of as more modern defensive tactics. They moved into a lot of that help switching. They, you know, they put an emergency person at the nail when Tyrese was, you know, isolated on a switch. Like everything that they were doing from top to bottom was to try to put as many bodies in the paint and prevent that type of stuff. And, you know, they're still giving up blow buys and other stuff. So I'm not sure that I'm even like, I'm, putting the defense in an area where he wasn't successful, but I don't know that this can necessarily just be pegged on Rick Carlisle. Yeah. I don't, I don't want this to sound excusey, but this is sort of what I meant at the beginning yeah. is like, let's pretend all those times that we just referenced where he said they're working on defense. They really were. And then the very first game after all those moments, the players don't execute the things they work on. Is that, that, that sounds like a Rick negative. But and maybe it is that they they weren't heeding to instructions. But at the same time, it's like, what if he told them to do it and they weren't? Or you know, what what do you do in that case? So there's like a lot of like I don't know the specifics well enough to know. But at the same time, yeah, look, they they've been last in defensive rating after the All Star break two seasons in a row, and it has not been a forte of the team. Certainly, they all they all know it 
too. Like that was the thing on media day. It was like, we got it. You, you know, or media day, X interview day. You listen to all those, right? They all know they have to be better defensively. And I think that is a significant shortcoming of this team in, in several ways. And it, it seemed like, yeah, you know, what was that stretch? I think it was the game before Thanksgiving to the game before Christmas. They were exactly 10th in defensive rating. And I was like, ah, I'm going to use this stat way too often. Um, but that that was their most successful stretch. But in general, I feel like they have for two years now, really, really floundered on that end of the floor. Because I will say this, that a lot of times we just think about reads being made on offense. We don't think about how important reads are on defense as well as terms of how closely you can gap the ball or when you're in help defensive situations like how far you should stray should you go help should you not help and like very early in the season I was a bit critical of how heavy they were at the nail and how you know they're providing this passive presence so like one game when they played Philadelphia and James Harden went off early on the game was in Philadelphia I believe Miles wasn't available then so like they were switching Jalen Smith out to the ball and Goga out to the ball when when James was out there. And then they would immediately put somebody at the nail because they were trying to prevent James from going left. Well, then it was just like a one pass away three. And they didn't give up a lot of above the break threes, but they would give up cuts from that spot. Like if somebody hit a quick, you know, set a quick flare screen on that guy at the nail, then it was easy action other ways around. And it's kind of like, if you have to put somebody there in order to switch, you know, maybe don't switch it or, maybe you need to be even more aggressive and just go switch to blitz. And in that regard, like at least you might force a turnover. Like if you're going to give up an open three anyways, at least if you're more aggressive with it, you might force a turnover. And then like even clear to the end of the season, like if you have Andrew Nemhard and Aaron Neesmith switching a ball screen against the New York Knicks and Neesmith's guarding Mitchell Robinson and Nemhard switches it, they successfully guard the ball screen. Isaiah Jackson does not need to be pulling clear over to the nail off of Obi Toppin and giving up a wide open three. And yet that was a thing. Like the whole point of switching is so that you don't have to help. Like that's why you're doing it. So there was those types of mess ups where it's like what you're saying. You don't know. Like, is that just a terrible read by Isaiah Jackson? Like what were the instructions before the game? Like, why aren't those reads improving? Like, why are we in game 81 and it's still a thing that we're watching? Like, I I don't completely know that, but I do know that there was roster things that hamstrung what the de- what the ceiling of the defense was ever going to be able to be, and that they just have a lot of guys on their roster who are going to have to make tiny incremental steps in that regard. So, Generally, if the same mistake happens a lot, I start to lean more towards plan is the reason that that is the case. Like, all the time when some role player hits five threes, you know, people will go, oh, they need to get out and guard this guy. Why weren't they guarding this guy? It's like, well, they, they probably wanted that guy to shoot, right? Like that was probably on purpose and it just happened to not work. Like when Miles had 40 points against the Celtics, Jalen Brown was like, yeah, we were cool with that. Like we, that was, that was fine. We wanted Miles to shoot and, and he punished us like good for him. But like, you know, Celtics fans are going to go, oh my gosh, fire Missoula. He's not adjusting to guard this guy. It's like, no, that's, that's what they're being told to do. So that's where the the disconnect can come. But if it happens over and over and over again, over 82, 70, whatever games, then it's like, okay, maybe this is the message not getting through or or poor process leading to it. But it's hard to know that kind of stuff. And I, I feel like that's excusing people, and it's not. It, it's the opposite, but it's just hard to kind of explain where I come from with that. I kind of do want to get your thoughts on one thing, because this is something that's popped up in my mailbag and everybody always kind of brings up like, well, if they wanted to fix the defense, they shouldn't have let go of Dan Burke or they should go throw the bag at Dan Burke. Like, where do you land on 
going from the Dan Burke, Nate McMillan, Frank Vogel system to, you know, where and what schematically the Pacers were doing this year, as far as, is that, do you see that as a main contributor for why the defense is what it is? Dan Burke was really good at helping guys with individual defensive habits. Like every player, it felt like when I would ask about how they were getting better on that end would bring up something they told him in some way. And that has not been the case for any assistant since then, you know, for the Pacers in terms of guys telling me on the team who has and hasn't helped them. It's not like they haven't been praised, but you know that it was like almost every time with Dan Burke, I think he just had that end of the floor down and McMillan was a strong defensive coach as well. Like that staff synergy was really good for the end of the floor. And you've talked about the personnel being a factor as well. I don't think it's like that simple. It's never that simple. Just like if I had Dan Burke with Rick Carlisle, things would be great, but I do think he would help, right? He is good at some of the, like literally slide over six inches and you're covering more or slide back six inches or turn your hips this way and you can recover to this faster. Like those sorts of things that sound so simple to explain. He was really good at, at one getting players to do it, but explaining to them why it's important or how it will help them or how it will help the team in a way that is, I think really unique for an assistant coach. And Hey, Philly's been a pretty good defensive team these last couple of years. So it's, it's never as simple as just like they let him go and that's why their defense stinks. But obviously I think he'd help a little bit. I think he'd help every team on that end of the floor. Yeah, I mean, I think he's definitely good at his job. I think my only hang up with it when people tend to keep bringing this up is that like, if you think back to that last season, they finished sixth in defensive rating and Jeremy Lamb was one of the people in the starting lineup for the majority of that year. So that's definitely a boon to them, feather in their cap, whatever you want to say. But like midway through the year, as you will recall, like Dan Burke did something that he would have never done in seasons past, which was add a 3-2 zone because their defense had been having so many issues. And then when they got into the bubble playoffs and they play the Miami Heat, like there were adjustments that they needed to make that they weren't really capable of making because it wasn't something they had tried the entire year. Like they needed to switch those dribble handoffs with Bam Adebayo and Duncan Robinson, and they just kept getting basically ethered by them because they weren't going to switch because they weren't a switching team. They very much valued like staying with their, you know, defending their own assignments. And even in the series against Boston, like they tried to do that. They came out in whatever it was, game two or game three, and they're like, oh, we're switching everything. And for a while, there was a novelty to it. Like, oh, the Pacers are switching and this isn't what we prepared for. And then as the game went on, it was like, oh, they're switching and they don't know what they're doing. And now they're hedging and they don't know what they're doing and there's nowhere for them to go from that. And like, it was strange when they hired Nate Bjorkren because everyone had kind of always pointed to like the offense is what needs to be fixed. And when he's sitting there doing like his interview after he had been hired, he was like talking about making the defense more disruptive and all these things they were going to do. And the one thing that he kept bringing up was, we don't want to be doing something for the first time in the playoffs. We want to have like, you know, that we've done box and one before if we need to do it. Now the problem is, is you have to actually get to the playoffs <laughs> and some of all of that mixing and matching that they did certainly hampered them. And I don't really think he was, he was coaching the roster he wanted, not the roster that he had, but like, I understand from that standpoint, why they made the switch that they did because the Pacers during those years, were very good at getting to the playoffs and good at what they did, but they didn't have a lot of room to go from there. And what Ronald Nora did this year was a lot more, like I said, like they were doing more modern defensive tactics. There was a lot more things that they tried, but I think that the point you bring up is also fitting that you could point in the past and be like, okay, maybe if the Pacers go sign a wing, who's more offensive minded, I can count on the Pacers coaching staff to tighten the screws 
Because, yeah. you know, you saw improvement from Boyan Bogdanovich over, you know, two seasons. Very early on, you could you could point to improvement from TJ Warren on that end. Like, within two weeks. Like, he had so many issues <laughs> in preseason against when they were over in India. And then, like, two weeks later, it was like, like oh, this is almost night and day from that. And now I don't know that I have the exact same confidence in individual player development on that end of the floor. Because over the last two years, I don't know that I could point to somebody specifically and say, you know, that guy made developmental strides there. Like you can point to like flashpoint moments this past year and be like, oh, Benedict got that stop against Jay Gilgis Alexander at the end of the game. But like that type of moment really wasn't necessarily where Benedict was struggling. Like he was more struggling with, you know, being the low man or his screen navigation or his off ball screen navigation. It wasn't so much like in isolation. So I kind of think that that's, I can see both sides of it. I'm just not as much as like, oh, if if Dan Burke was here that with this same roster, they would be a top six defense again. Like, I, I don't think I'm ready to go that far with it. But that kind of concludes my that one weakness area. If you want me to move on to the next one, I'll, I'll just get your thoughts right off the top. The struggling sophomores. How much of this do you blame on the coaching staff and Rick Carlisle? And how much of it lands with Isaiah Jackson and, and Chris Duarte? Good, good question. <laughs> I mean, there was an early part of the season, like before Chris's big injury, where he was talking about how just like sometimes when you come into year two, you're like, I got this. You know, I've done this. Like, I get the rigor of the NBA. I had a good rookie year. I'm ready. And then you're like, oh, I'm not ready. <laughs> like, it's still the NBA. And Tyree said he had that at first his second season too. Like this isn't a unique thing to Chris Duarte. Like I understand from a human perspective where that comes from, but yeah, I think that, I think that for those two guys, the team's changed style in Chris's case was tough for him. And some of that is on the way he plays. And some of that is on the way that uh, the team made changes, but um, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of parse out how much, uh, should be on each party between what I just said and also the coaching staff going, well, let's find a way for you to be effective within these adjustments, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think like Chris is kind of the only player that you can point to that didn't really necessarily take advantage of the development opportunity that was in front of him. And I think, you know, I don't think either party being he or the coaching staff can control for injuries and that what happened to his ankle against the Miami Heat. And I think that was something that probably bothered him the entire season that doesn't really fall on anyone. His role was kind of all over the place. And again, I don't necessarily think that that falls on the coaching staff. It had to do with who else was available and wasn't available. And I do think like looking back at it, I think there was like a four or five game stretch where they were literally starting him for no other reason than to try to prime the pump and get him going. And it didn't necessarily work. Um, I think that what you said is probably true that who was and wasn't on the roster this year by comparison to last year, no more Sabonis. Now there is Benedict. There is still Buddy. There is other players competing at his position for those minutes and the type of pressure that put on, I think was another aspect of it. So um, I think that these things are probably always somewhat of a two-way street. I think if I was going to point the finger, I would do it more so with Isaiah Jackson. And maybe that more has to do with decisions that were made last summer and the fact that, you know, they had five centers on the roster and that really buried him. I do not think it was ideal that there was a stretch in what the end of December where in eight of 13 games, he got DNP'd. Um, I don't think he was necessarily always taking advantage of those opportunities, but the difference being is before when I said there was accountability and that minutes shouldn't be unconditional, there has to be a point in time where there's conditions to actually get minutes. 
and that wasn't really happening once they made the decision that, oh, Jalen Smith actually isn't a four, and he's probably ahead of Isaiah, rightfully so, right now at the five position, but now you're in year two of a guy that you moved up in the draft that you targeted to go get, and there wasn't, you know, in the middle of the season, there wasn't really a plan for him to get better because he played, what, one or two games with the Madians this year? I think yep. that was it. So um, that time sharing the backup five position certainly wasn't ideal, and that doesn't necessarily fall on any one specific person, but it can't continue next year. Yeah, at least, like, I, I think he should have played more, but at least I got it. Like, I got who they were playing instead of him this year. We're at, like, this is a random example, but when they were playing Jakar Sampson over Goga, I was always like, why? <laughs> what is what? What is the benefit of this? decision even short term right at least this year i like understood the the reasons behind why they were picking who they were picking to play and that at least makes it feel a little more justifiable even if i felt like Isaiah should have played more even at the four specifically that was something they lauded after they picked him but uh i at least, at least this year the process i understand more but i agree that there, there should have been more exploration going on there and that's the key word, I think, because him playing only 13 minutes with Miles Turner and what was a fact-finding mission, you do that in that one game against the Pelicans, I wrote it, and then they never really looked at it again. Like, it was never something they fully explored. And maybe, like, we don't know how many of these decisions sometimes go into, like, you know, I think that Daniel Tice at the current moment is better than Isaiah and Jalen. And maybe some of the thought process there too was like, we need to get him out there, show other teams that he's healthy. Maybe we can find a taker for his contract if we do that. Like, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes all the time and what decisions and why they're being made for playing time in certain circumstances. So that's something else I factor into. But um, unless you have something else that you think I missed on where he wasn't successful, I'll hop over to, you know, what's next or you know, where they need to go next season. Go for it. Okay. So obviously at media day, they need to talk about fixing the defense. <laughs> third year in a row. I'm not I even going to ask about it. I'll let it come up on his own volition this time. Yeah. I, I, I won't go too deep in that since we already covered the defense pretty thoroughly here, but I think another big thing that's kind of looming in a way that it wasn't this year is role acceptance. So we don't know who all will be drafted this year. And it seemed like everybody was on board with everything they were doing this year. And again, don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but we're to the point where it now seems like Benedict Matherin will be the starter when the season starts next year. So you're going to have to sell that to Buddy in a way that you didn't really like, let's be honest, when you're doing that at the end of the year, when it's clear that it's shifted to, to development, maybe that's an easier sell than it is at the beginning of next year. And I don't want to be judging Buddy here. I don't know how he stands or feels about it just to look at it and see that there are going to be a little bit more competition in certain spots. So again, like selling between TJ McConnell and Andrew Nemhard, which one of them is going to be handling the ball more, or how that type of role shifts out where Chris Duarte even fits in this rotation. If you find a more permanent solution at the four spot over the summer, whether that's in the draft, whether that's in free agency or via trade, and you're telling Aaron Neesmith, like, hey, you started however many games last year, but now you're a bench player. Or Jordan Wara, we like some of what you did last year, but, you know, maybe you're on the bubble of the rotation or maybe, you know, 
you're in one game and out the next. Like having to manage some of that stuff, I don't think is necessarily something that they had to do this year, with the exception of what we just talked about with regards to Jalen and Ijax. Like it was kind of easier to keep a copacetic locker room because the pecking order was pretty obvious this year for the most part. And, you know, when Ben's a rookie, it's easier to be like, hey, he's a rookie and that's why we're bringing him off the bench. And oh, it's pretty clear to see from a usage standpoint that his usage is a massive swing and he gets to do way more when he isn't playing with Tyrese. And maybe that's good for his long-term development than when you're in year two. Yeah, I just heard John Hollinger, who used to be in the front office with the Grizzlies, talking about this on, I don't remember what, it doesn't matter. But he was, they were talking about the coaching carousel going on right now in the NBA and how, you know, like you can interview a guy a hundred times and love everything he's saying. And it will tell you nothing about how that coach will do managing that part, what you just talked about in December or January, when, you know, the slog of the regular season when things maybe aren't going well. And sometimes your team is winning and nobody cares because you're winning and clearly the decisions are going well. But if you lose three, four games in a row and all of a sudden guys are like, why aren't I playing more? I should like, even the Warriors are dealing with this in the playoffs. Like half the role players are like, why am I not playing more? You know, it's like, that's that's a hard part of the job, and next year it's going to be harder for the Pacers, who have a lot of guys who can probably say, based on their play this year, I think I deserve this role or this amount of minutes, and the Pacers will say, well, no. And like to your point about Buddy, like that was what Kevin Pritchard said when he was asked about you know, a potential extension. He's like, we've got to find a role that we're comfortable with and Buddy's comfortable with before we would approach something like that. Right? That is going to be a defining part of the Pacers next season. And I'll bring this up with Pritchard as well. But like, this is something I asked Tyrese about at his ex interview. The first year of a, of a team doing well is fun. And then expectations come. And that is an added hurdle that every human coaches, players, decision makers have to deal with. And that is part that becomes part of the job for everybody is managing them and managing themselves within them. Yeah, I mean, and I think that if you just look at the past era of this team, you could kind of see some of that, right? Like the 17-18 season was like the ultimate immaculate vibes here. (laughs) And then, you know, Victor has the injury and that kind of adjusts things. And then we get to the point last year where, like, I don't want to say it was a toxic environment, but it wasn't, it was, there was a definite staleness there after years of trying to do something and that guys weren't necessarily meshing. And I, I once heard Steve Clifford talk when he was doing, or there was clinic notes and he made a point that, you know, I don't think everybody always thinks about that. He was like, you know, in the summers we hear about guys getting together and organizing workouts or like team dinners on the road during the year. And he's like, that's not what team chemistry is. He's like, team chemistry is when it's a Tuesday night in the middle of January and you look over to the bench and the bench is standing up and is completely invested in that game and their teammates who are on the floor. And he used his example of, you know, in 2009, when the Magic went to the NBA Finals, he's like, those guys, he's like, there was guys in the locker room who never even talked to each other. But when the lights turned on and they were in the gym, like they were supporting each other from the bench and, you know, anything else, he's like, they weren't going to dinner together. He's like, I coached a team with the Bobcats and that team was really close as far as friendships. And he's like, and they had no chemistry on the court. He's like, we just look at it and think from the outside that when we see like a tangible photo of a team going to dinner that that means that you know <laughs> stuff is working and he's like it, it may not. charged so, so last year like i mean you could tell like i'm sure you could from being in the arena that like 
that team was invested in the success of their yep. teammates. Like they yep. rooted for each other. They pulled for each other. Like the fact that Jalen and Isaiah Jackson handled the fact that they were trading off who was starting or who was coming off the bench as well as they de- did, at least from a public standpoint, I think speaks pretty well to how things were being managed. But what you said is true. Like things are going to change this year as far as competition for spots. I mean, even last year, like Chris went into the year and he was the starter. And now, right now, it's not clear to me exactly what type of role he might even have next year, depending upon who they draft. So um, things are going to change. We'll see how all of it goes. O'Shea Brissett, first team all bench chemistry. (laughs) First team is just him and no one else. And then the second team can be five other guys. Yeah. It's like, that sounds dumb to praise him for, but like other guys call him out like, oh, dude, O'Shea on the bench. He's the best. He's always gassing you up. So that, that is important. And I think that's a good part of it. And yes, I think, that will maybe not define. That's always too strong of a word, but that'll be a close to defining factor for the Pacers to me next season. It's like, what is this group really? You know, can they handle, uh, you know, the external pressure of like, hey guys, like you haven't won a playoff game in five years, you haven't made it in four, three. Time is an enigma. Um, you haven't made it in a minute, and now people expect you to win because you were kind of good last year at your best. You were top whatever six team in the East. Like, you got to win. It's got to happen. How does that? That that is part of Rick's job. We'll be managing everyone within that setting, and I'll be very curious, if any, how much that changes the team. Same. I mean, do you have anything else you want to add about Rick? I think I, I tried to be as detailed as I could be here. Uh, you didn't talk about the fact that he's a pilot. I am disappointed in that. Oh, that's so, a good question. So, if Rick <laughs> offered to fly you somewhere, would you get in the out. plane? I'm out. Ah, uh, I would probably do it. I think now that I. Have a second to actually think about it. I I am not a heights guy, so I would I would be gripping the the rail or the handle or whatever option I had with the strongest grip I have. But I think I I trust him enough to do it. I just would be terrified the entire time. Yeah, my issue is that I'm just like afraid of small planes to begin with. It wouldn't really matter who the pilot was. I'm probably <laughs> not getting it. So. I think it'd be really cool to do. I think that's a that's a fun story. I think I'd be more willing to sit and listen to him play a song on the piano than I would be of getting in the plane. Yeah, that is one of my favorite things about Rick is like he wants to know a lot about stuff. You know, like once he finds out about it, he wants. Uh, I took a picture of this, but there was a Mad Ants game where there was a DJ like two feet off the court with all his DJ gear, and at halftime, Rick walked over where the DJ wasn't there and was like looking at the deck for a good like two or three minutes, just like trying to figure out what everything does, what the buttons do. You know. I don't, he didn't actually touch anything, but I was like, oh man, I think if he could, if he had the chance, like he would actually play a song or something. Like that—that's who he is. These are the types of details that we need from you, Tony. Like we need. This is the type of reporting that I want. <laughs> I never asked him about that moment. I wish I did. Uh, yeah, we'll do Kevin Pritchard uh, on our next show here. But I think this was a good deep dive to to Rick's year and the way he's kind of evolved and what is next for him with this team. And a big part of his thing we didn't talk about is two more years left on his deal. And teams do not like the whole lame duck last year of a coach thing. So we will see what next year means for Rick, too. If they have a great year, perhaps that changes even the tenor around him. So we'll see. Thanks for having me back on another, another review we've completed (laughs) eight out of nine now. Oh, I just drilled my water bottle with my arm. I shouldn't have fist pumped that hard. Yes. Kevin Pritchard coming right up. Um, If you want to read more of Caitlin's stuff, I'll just let her tell you where to do that. 
Right. So at C2 underscore Cooper is my Twitter handle from there. You can find a link to the Patreon, patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote where all of these reviews are also linked. And if you follow Kayla on Twitter, you can see her playoff musings like the team that won wanted it more and the team that lost did not want it as much. That was brutal during the Sixers game. It was like all anybody was, was talking about. What, Ryan Regan has a bit about that when when players, you know, after a win, they'll say like, uh, we, we had God on our side tonight. It's like, is the team in the other locker room like, oh, guys, God God didn't want us to win today. Like, that's not how it worked. Um, but, it, you know, it, very, very astute point about the, the conversation around playoff games. Kevin Pritchard show coming up with us likely tomorrow. And then next week, it's draft lottery time for this Pacers team. So lots to talk about with that as well. Thank you guys a ton for listening. We'll see you soon.